Welcome to GEMS with me, Jeffrey Allen Henderson, designer based out of Harlem. I wanted to connect with folks in the industry who over the years I've gotten a chance to learn from. I wanted to hear about their struggles, their successes, as well as what they're going to do next. So sit back and enjoy, and I hope we all learn something. Good things. You're good. I'm good. I'm going to just jump into like the first conversation of your because I was thinking about this for a while now, and I wanted to say, I mean, thank you for all the conversations we've had, because I remember back when you were an intern coming in, jumping into Nike, and fast-forwarding to, like, even the time you were like, yo, Jeff, why don't you take on this Kanye project? And I was like, who? Because um, <laughs> I had just come back from Japan, and I know who that cat was. So I think we've had a long history of conversation on everything, and I've always been appreciative of, like, your push and your sort of focus because we've again talked about this i just sort of show up i like to draw shoes i like to do stuff Um, you always come in with like a point of view and i'm curious a do you remember us meeting at all yeah yeah i do man i remember when i first got to nike we, because we met briefly during my internship. It was really when I got there with cross training when we all sat on MH4, mm-hmm. and your 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 cube was right outside of E. Scott's newly appointed <laughs> yes, office. Yes, yes. And uh, I remember when I came in, the magical black person at that time was Kevin Carroll. That brother just connected <laughs> all of us. Indeed. <laughs> so <laughs> I sat at the corner because I remember people would clown me because my desk was the closest to the elevator, and they were like, "Ah, oh, they're gonna think you're the receptionist." Oh, I'm like, yeah. "I'm just gonna see. I'm gonna see everybody first. Yeah, you yes, remember that? It's all coming back to me now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was strategically positioned to see any and everybody that got off that elevator, from athletes to executives. And I remember one weekend, I see the black Benjamin Button. AKA Kevin Carroll walking past and then he backpedals to my cube and said, Hey, what are you doing here? You a black person. <laughs> and I was like, that, that, that I am. And so we became friends. He said, you got to meet the other black person. <laughs> and he walked me over to your, to, uh, to your area. And uh, East Scott wasn't there, but you were there. And I remember you were wearing like a knitted cap and a hoop earring. I said, Oh, he really black. I said, he really is black. This is awesome. And yeah, I sat down and you showed me like the Nike basketball stuff you was doing. You show, you told me a story of how you studied engineering at Georgia Tech and, and how, you know, me going to design school and coming in as an intern was a first because they had never been someone that went through design school. It was usually engineering or you work your way in through other departments. And you told me to go talk to Ray Butts. And I went and talked to Ray Black Butts. And yeah, man. Yeah, literally is, man. He is. And that, that brother put me up on game. And, and I think we've been family ever since then, man, since that moment. Mm, that is hilarious. That is, yeah, it's like a short number of people that you had to meet. But once you met them, you were good. And I think that is, a, what's funny is me giving you the thought that you're the first person to get in that way. Because the reality is there were only three people before you or four people before you. <laughs> it wasn't like it was a laundry list of ways to get in. Like, E. Scott already had 100 years of experience. Dwayne had 100 years of experience. Wilson came in right out of, I don't know, University of Oregon first class. Um, And I showed up in engineering. So you just sort of came in with, oh, you came in the normal route. You had an internship. I didn't know black folk could get in that way. (laughs) Seriously, bro. I was like, I was shocked, too. I'm like, I'm like. I felt like Soldier Boy when he said Drake. I'm like, internship? <laughs> internship? 
bro. I was so shocked. I was like, how? And 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 then, yeah. Then I realized, you know, that there was no structure. There was no system, and the system that was in place was to find an athlete, but not the creative. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, following y'all, I had I really took it serious. Like I couldn't, I couldn't be the last because y'all kept telling me you the first. But I'm in my mind, I'm like, shoot, I don't want to be the last. Mm-hmm. This is crazy. And so, yeah, man, I just tried to follow y'all lead as best as I could. Nah, you did more than that. You did more than that. Was it when you got in, you got hit with people who gave you some pointers? Did you have a strategy coming in like, I want to do this, I want to do that? Did it change when you landed? Nah, man, I had a very strict strategy. So the thing that I don't really often talk about is how I ended up in design. Mm. I think that kind of sets the context. So I was actually headed to Georgia Tech as well, man, a double major in mechanical and electrical engineering. And um, I had figured, you know, at that point, in my mind, it was analogous experiences, right? Like if I can learn how to make a car, then I can apply that to making anything. Because in my mind, I thought, you know, car design was the biggest thing you could do, at least in the Midwest. That's what they talked about. So I was hit by a drunk driver and I had also transferred high schools my senior year. So my track and field coaches, I refuse to play any other sports. My track and field coaches was like, yo, you're not going to play football. You're not going to do this. You're not going to do that. You're running track. You're throwing shot put. We see you drawing sneakers. You sure you want to go and do mechanical and electrical engineering? We think you should do industrial design. So they gave me an article about um, this kid named Chi Wei Lee, who interned at Nike. He also interned at Toyota and did a car design competition in one, and it became like the basis of the RAV4. He went to school in Detroit. I didn't know any of this. I called Toyota in Japan on a Friday from the athletic director's office. Didn't have a clue about international time zones. I thought it was Friday (laughs) everywhere. (laughs) They called me back on that Monday or Sunday and left a message. I ended up speaking to, I think at the time, um, uh, one of the executives in design. He mentioned to me Art Center and CCS. I told him about Chicago. He kept it a buck with me and said, look, the average age is 30 for industrial design because people usually go back after they get a degree and realize that industrial design is really where they want to go. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And he was like, you're 16, 17, coming out of high school. You're going to be outworked because these people got families. They're not there to play. Are you competitive? And I laughed. I said, I'm from the south side of Chicago, dog. Like, I ain't worried about competition. And I put my portfolio together, gave up the chance to go to, to tech, um, and, and ended up driving to Detroit with my parents to go and, 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 uh, and try to talk my way or finesse my way into CCS. Got in on probation, you know, because I didn't have a true portfolio. So my strategy became like, okay, if I get my internship at Nike, I've been writing letters since I was a kid. I want to spend my 20s building a global network. I'm going to take less money. You know, I'm not going to try to push to get the big pay raises, but I, I want Nike to send me all around the world so I could build a network of people that I then could go in and, and interact with. And I learned that from you because I remember you told me you want to have people who you want your kids to have a friend or somewhere they can go in every country on the planet. And I was like, man, I ain't never heard nobody say that. So I'm like, I want that too. Like I want my kids to be able to have international friends and relationships. So I just traveled a lot in my twenties on Nike's dime to see the world, to meet people, to learn about the culture. Um, and then my goal was to say, okay, in my twenties, get my master's degree, you know, about a, before I turn 30 and then use my network to then create a business or businesses. So then I can use my thirties to kind of monetize my network and then my forties grow my net worth. And so I've stuck to that plan my entire life. Like my twenties was experiences, thirties was education and monetization of my network. Now I enter into my forties this year, I turned 40 in October and I'm going to start to now monetize everything I've done to build, to build generational wealth. 
So I've just been following a combination of all of y'all blueprints, man, but in my own way. That's wild to think about. Like, I think the amount of people who actually work at Nike and the limited number of people who made things happen and all of our plans that we had, if we'd have stayed, like how wild that would be. But Man. it was sort of early on, like I had that same thing of like, and I think these are the conversations that we had. And oddly enough, Ray Butts is the one who set that in motion and he's the one who's still there, is that I knew going in that, all right, I didn't really have a plan of whether I was going to stay at Nike forever or not. But like your point, there were things I needed to get out of the swoosh, whether they wanted me to get it out of them or not. And so living in Japan, check the box, working in marketing, check the box, like things that I didn't get paid to work in marketing, but I wouldn't sat with them enough to where I figured out how to world work, um, getting those elements out of that giant company. And then when they're like, yo, you want to stay and take this job? And it's like, no, nah, I think I've graduated. So I'm going to move on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think is kind of very key. And I know you sort of exploit is a terrible word. But <laughs> you took advantage of those moments um, by far. And it was funny, the conversation we had before when I was like, you know, about being a Nike alumni and you were like, nope, that's not the word I would use. <laughs> and you used the word survivor. Tell me about that. Yeah, man. Uh, it is true, man. You, you you survived the swoosh if you got there early 2000s, you know, late 90s. Um, because I don't think people realize Nike wasn't, a global brand at that moment. It was still functioning like a startup that was well-known in North America, but it didn't have international respect. It, the athletes did, but the company, you know, it was number two, number three in Europe behind Adidas in a lot of categories. We didn't have a presence in soccer or what we call global football. We didn't really have an offense beyond running and basketball. You know, cross-training was a thing, but at that point, people were like, cross-training isn't a sport. How do you play cross-training? And then we see CrossFit come out. So it was at a very pivotal point when Nike was going from being a cool teenager to having to be an adult. And this adult had a lot of money, a lot of power, but no, no guidance. And so if you give any person that's 22, you know, billions of dollars, they're going to do some wild stuff, <laughs> you know, and they're going to, they're going to, they're going to, you know, have a different way of seeing the world. So I got there at the same time as Nike reached its early twenties, I was in my early twenties. And with that, you make a lot of emotional decisions, which often when you look back, you be like, dang, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. So I had to be the prototype for what the future Nike employee would be. So a lot of the mistakes they made on me, the, the younger generation or the ones that came after us who are, quote unquote, the cultural cool kids, they benefit from all the failings of leadership that were experimented on with people like myself. You know, so all these kids who are hot sketchers who come from art center and CCS, <laughs> all that wouldn't be there, dude. If if I didn't get punched in the stomach a bunch of times as a as a guy who was like, wait, why aren't we going back doing sponsored studios? Why aren't we going back and 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 giving resources to these kids in inner cities through competitions? And and so when I when I say survivor, it's because imagine having your whole life, right? I grew up on the south side of Chicago was given very good instruction from a, from a close knit family on how to be respectful, how to carry myself, how to be unapologetically authentic. And then you get to Nike at this moment and people are penalizing you for your youth. I came in around the same time they gave LeBron 90 million and they wouldn't give me a $5,000 pay increase. So I always was (laughs) like, how, like I get LeBron, but there is no him if we're not building product in the brand to support him. So it was this weird moment of, they were betting on youth, but they were selectively betting on youth. 
And it, for a person like me at that time when I was more emotional and not as strategic as I am now, I took it as like, damn, I'm good enough to be here, but not good enough to, to be, you know, rewarded for what I do or encouraged to stay. It's like once you got there, you no longer were a consumer. And what I found to be wild about it is the advice y'all gave me helped me navigate that, that system. One thing you, y'all told me is never go where one of us has been, meaning black people. If one of us had been like you lived in Japan, I would never ask to live in Japan because then they're going <laughs> to compare us. Right. So I'm like, cool, I'm going to stick over here. I'm going to go into the research side. I'm going to go to to Europe and look at supply chain. Like we all were able to have our own, you know, chance to be measured against ourselves. We all had our first things. You know what I'm saying? Like we all were first at something and we strategically talked about who can be first at what and supported that. So the survivor part is, yeah, man, when you're at a fast growing company that has a lot of societal privilege and a lot of influence and a lot of money, but very little structure and very little leadership training, because people confuse and conflate the title of a leader with the behavior of a leader. You just because you got a title don't mean you have the skill set to lead. And a lot of folks were rapidly promoted as the company grew, but they had poor leadership skills. And until they put the system in place in mid 2000s after the big layoffs, people weren't really being managed. People were being facilitated. We facilitated personalities. We didn't manage them. And well, that's we what also, I mean by surviving. Right. There was also like a promotion of, did you draw a hot shoe? Let's promote yeah. you. Did you market a hot program? Let's promote you. And yeah. they didn't really look to see whether or not you had the skill set. And mm-hmm. they didn't divide conversations into, you know what? You're a very creative senior designer. Let's pay you to be a very creative senior designer. We don't have to make you a creative director. I think that's mm-hmm. the part where they sort of it took them a while to get to that point where because I was there when they divided the responsibility of creative director and design manager mm. um, like that was one job. So there were people who were immensely talented in being a creative, but they weren't about to go ask HR for, to get a raise for you. And once mm-hmm. they sort of figured out pieces like that, I think that became a little better. I think by the time you arrived, they'd figured out some of the plan, but to your point, they hadn't figured out everything and we were all sort of like guinea pigs to mm-hmm. the design world because that was if you, yeah, by the time we moved to Mia Hammond, it already changed. Before mm-hmm. that, design was part of the business unit. So oh, it still was at that point. Yeah. Right, but I mean, we all sat with the business units. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. then it became Mia Ham. That was the first separation. I think that's what yep. the coup that sort of Hope pulled off is like, well, let's not even sit with them. And then yep. it became, we don't even report to them. And I, that yep. took another like 10 Six years to pull off. Yeah, um, so, but <laughs> it became the beginning of like design is a different conversation. But no matter where you landed, there was still so few of us that mm-hmm. we ended up in a way, I think, being our own internal creative sort of management unit. Uh, we had this conversation just a couple of days ago about like, we all went to the same HR person. Mm-hmm. No matter what group we were in, we had the same person telling us, this is how you have the conversation. Cause she mm-hmm. was the one who looked out for us. Like by yep. far, Ray Butts was the godfather. She was the godmother, like yep. making sure we all knew this is what you asked for. And this is how you have a conversation. Cause we didn't really have that background. And it wasn't even a background. It was just that we weren't in those meetings and we weren't going to, dinners on the weekends with people who would tell us how it worked Mm -mm. and that i think was the missing link because whenever people talk about diversity it's like yeah we can bring in 35 jason maidens in the entry level but if there's no jason maiden high enough up to like instruct what those 35 at the bottom are doing they might have some bigger issues and that's not helpful Um, at all so i think that's the part where 
when you talk about because <laughs> we've been having this conversation about trauma on a lot of reasons, especially with COVID nineteen. I think mm-hmm. that's where when you say surviving Nike, it's definitely like what can you get out of it? I know, and we all had this moment when we we're like, you know what, I'm done. But when you had the I'm done, that don't mean you leave. That means you sort of absorb as much information, knowledge, build as many as much talent and fill that toolbox as you can while you're there. Yeah. Uh, and I think you did like for me, and it was strange before us, like I went to Japan and that made no sense to anybody. Nope. You Trump that was like, I'm gonna go to Stanford. <laughs> <laughs> How did you come to that sort of conclusion to put that in your toolbox? Oh man, that's a great question. Um, well, I, I knew that, designers would need to understand business in order to kind of be prepared for the market. Cause the thing I saw Nike forcing people towards was skill set acquisition. And if you come from, you know, neighborhoods where skill sets only get you so far, right? Like, yeah, I can be a mechanic, but if I don't have a strategy and knowing when the market turns down, how to keep putting food on my table, what happens when nobody's, you know, using a car no more, I'm, I'm a mechanic, but what, what value do I have? And I felt like because we were so excited you know, to be together. We were so excited to be pushing to have our own reporting structure. You know, Hoke was starting to push to have a P&L, like an actual financial contribution beyond cost, you know, cost centers. We were actually starting to be margin accretive, not just brand accretive. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, I just got out of design school. And if I'm at Nike and designers are excited that they finally get to do 3D and it was like mandatory for me to learn 3D <laughs> in undergrad. I'm like, this is crazy. Like they like six years behind what the world is at in terms of the, the, the skill sets that designers need to, to be valuable. And so I started to just kind of understand two things to be true. I've never been the person that actually wanted to fit in. Like I've never been so desperate to want to be cool. So I was like, I'm gonna hang out with designers anyway because I work with them. I'd rather hang out with the people who control the money, the people who can tell me no. So my strategy became, I need to eliminate the way people can tell me no very quickly. And so I started sitting with finance. I started sitting with supply chain. I started sitting with corporate compliance and strategy. And what I realized is that people would be like, I can't believe a designer wants to come hang out with us. You know, and this is a lot of our conversations, Jeff. Like you would just pop up and hang out with pattern engineers and be cool with them. And I'm like, <laughs> hey, okay. All right. So what's the thing I'm interested in? And who are the people that would be you know, excited to see a creative come and ask them questions? So I figured it was the business operations side. No one from design had ever spent time with those folks in biz ops. And when I started digging in, I was like, okay, I need to understand how Nike was built in order to know how to navigate this system effectively. So I started to do more research about what Phil Knight went to school because he learned how to build a company somewhere. And I was like, where did he learn how to do this? And I wanted to kind of get a sense of what he learned and how he did it so I could do it for myself at some point. So I initially had got into you know, started down the path of going to an East Coast, East Coast school that shall remain nameless. Um, and I was, <laughs> it's a rival. I mean, I was very close to, you know, being part of that family, wonderful school. Um, and one of my mentors, Gina Warren, I had told no one I was applying to grad school. She, um, she was the first one to tell me, hey, Nike has a program where they could potentially reimburse you. I didn't realize that she was just telling me to, to talk to people at Nike. I was like, I already took the GMAT. I'm going to apply to get to Stanford. So I applied, I got in. It was a big internal controversy, like, oh, my gosh, a designer is going to get a business degree and Nike's going to pay for it. Why should we do this with you? And there was a question asked of me by David Ayer, who was the head of HR at that time. He said, Jason, mm. why should we use a hammer 
when a solution should be a screwdriver. We could just send you to running and you can learn more about running and that's how you can grow in this company. And I said, David, if we're going to be a global company, don't you think that the future leaders should have access to other global leaders from different industries? And I would bring that information back here and we'll be a better company because of that. And he was like, okay, um, you're clearly prepared to have this conversation. I'm going to approve it. Because <laughs> I knew that they would question, like, why would a person who draws sneakers, you know, go to business school? But they didn't do any background research on me and realize that I'm an analytical person. I was a math kid. So mm. it wasn't drawing was one of the things I can do. And I started to see certain leaders play political games um, to jockey for power in a new structure. And I, and I was like, okay, if I understand the structure and the system that they're playing in, I understand the person who created it. I have a better chance at navigating it and keeping myself worth intact. So went to the Stanford Business School, Graduate School of Business. I understand intimately how and why Phil Knight structured Nike the way it was how and why Phil Knight structured the incentive model, the, like the distribution, the supply chain, like coming to Stanford and having a Nike background and, and being an athlete, you can see exactly why he was able to do what he did with the way they educate people here. And once I realized like, holy crap, you know, I get it. Phil Knight built something that if people are, are watching, they can learn how to build their own. This system is an open Wikipedia page if you just know how to study it. And I studied it and it was a blessing because Mr. Knight was the one who, you know, paid for me to go to grad school. Uh, Mr. Jordan paid for me to go uh, you know, <laughs> out of their own individual money. You know, they supported me. Um, I went and spoke at the Coaches Hall of Fame induction ceremony for Mr. Knight in New York. It was Coach K and then me, which was crazy. And, you know, Mr. Knight cried and sent me a letter afterwards. It was beautiful, man, because they he sat me down before I quit. And it was like, Jason, don't just settle for working at Nike. Go and create your own. And I'm thinking to myself, just the founder of Nike telling me to go create my own, do what's right for my family. I, I felt so, so encouraged by that, that conversation, man. It was crazy. I think what's wild about Nike and kind of anywhere is that when you first get in, there's like this vibe of like, yo, I'm just happy to get in. Mm -hmm. And then you walk around and talk to people and you realize there's a bunch of people who are happy to get in. And you... If you're, I don't know if it's if you're lucky or the right person looks at you, but some people look at you like, you could do more, so don't be like everybody else. And you're like, I just made it to the league, and you're telling me I should work harder so I can be a starter. Mm -hmm. And to some degree, you're like, yo, I like that. But some people don't get told that. And for me, it was sort of like, it was a little bit perplexing because I would go in and I would complain about how things were working to John Hook. And John Hope would look at me like, is that you or is that everybody else? And I'd be like, what do you mean? Like, people are struggling, yada, yada, yada. He goes, but can you do this? And I was like, I guess. And once you figure out that folks expect more from you, mm -hmm. then you start living up to that. I think the trouble is you start living beyond what that place can even do mm -hmm. with an individual. And the smart people are like, you should go do that. We're holding you back. And I think that's the part where folks sort of looked at me like, we don't have a position for you to play. <laughs> like, there's no job for what it is you know how to do here. If you decide to go somewhere else, we got no issue. And it takes like, are y'all trying to kick me out kind of vibe? Um, and I wasn't sure. I think going to Japan was a little bit, that position was built for like a creative director or a VP. Mm. Nobody wanted it. 
because it, to your point, it was sort of made up. It was a made up job in a city that um, Mark Parker loved mm-hmm. that had a business, but they weren't allowed to make stuff for Japan. Mm-hmm. And they asked, they had like three creative directors and VPs on the list. Like I know all I know is Richard Clark was like the main dude. And he was like, that's a made up job. Cause I went and asked him like, Richard, why aren't you going? He was like, it's a made up job. It's supposed to fail. Mm-hmm. He didn't say it's supposed to fail, but he was like, it's not built to win. Mm-hmm. It wasn't made to survive. I was new and young. I was like, yo, I could be in Oregon or I could be in Tokyo. Easy decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I did more than survive, I sort of did well. It sort of wrote my path for Nike, but it also helped me look up and be like, yo, there's probably more out there. Let's see what this tastes like. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we sort of did more to survive when we left. The question for you now is like, you added that piece to your toolbox, even on the swoosh. What what are you adding to your toolbox at this moment? Oh, man. Great question. I think um, so that what I strategically did and very purposefully did when I came back to the Silicon Valley was rebrand myself away from being a footwear designer and being viewed as a creative mm-hmm. leader. Because I think there's limited market opportunities for people who say they only can design a singular product. I think that's stupid and it's a waste of what design truly is. It's it's about discovery. It's about question asking. But a lot of the designers now are being tricked to fall in love with the solution over falling in love with the process of discovering a problem. So I came here to reposition myself in a way that says, yes, I've done this work at Nike. However, you can drop me into any system and I can perform. So it's why I deviated to the far left of consumer, you know, traditional kind of streetwear you know, basketball, sport culture, and went hard into, you know, hardware analytics, um, machine learning, artificial intelligence, you know, um, multi-timeplex spectroscopy, using light to detect allergens and liquid, using machine learning to understand, you know, sentiment analysis and audience engagement for influencers. And then now what I did with Super Rock, with, you know, looking at behavioral psychology and self-association and behavior change through the lens of what people call psychogenic death, which is the science of giving up. How do you encourage people to not give up, but more, more or less double down and, and, and seek the outcome that biases towards the positive version of who they want to be? So I've switched and started to re-engage the nerd side of Jason, the academic side, <laughs> because I think people thought that because I'm from the inner city, because I do cool stuff with cool people, that I'm not into reading academic journals and understanding data and going to symposiums. Before going to a TED Talk was like culturally cool, I was giving TED Talks. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, not to say I help swing a culture in this way, I think it's a lot of people, but... It, the, the cool thing to be when I was a kid was not a nerd. Now it's cool to be a nerd. And so if I'm a black person or a blurred black nerd, and I'm looking for someone who understands culture, who knows how to carry themselves, but can have a deep intellectual conversation, I'm not looking at Neil deGrasse Tyson. I mean, I, I'm not like, I, I can't relate to him. You know, he's out of my reach. Mm-hmm. So who can we, who can we turn to, right? That wants to have these conversations. And so just like in footwear where I was, the, you know, the young kid and, you know, learn from you guys. I'm like, okay, that needs to be that same person in technology and entrepreneurship because the culture will have its its turn within entrepreneurship and technology. And that turn is happening now. And I, I just want it to be part of the next wave because I always want to be employable for what's going to happen next. I don't look at what had happened. I, I start to prepare for what will happen next. So I got to go to the areas where people are doing their research and have the money to kind of push through what they want to be next. And so 
that's what I'm adding to my toolbox now, man, is a more extended network, um, multiple, you know, areas of, to generate income, but at the same time, continuous access to data and research that can help me inform where I can place my, my gifts and my talents, you know, next. Mm. I think that's uh, the piece you brought up about, especially what you did with um, Superheroic. I think it's interesting of how many people fully understood the complexity of what you did, which was one half of the coin was it was sneakers. Mm -hmm. Like it was, it was full lock was part of it. It was a shoe you put on for me. I never saw it that way because it was about a behavioral behavioral science conversation. Mm -hmm. Like it was first and foremost that, so I never saw it as like a shoe as much of it was. I mean, it began with, I think the conversation with Khalil Mm -hmm. and I got it as that. And I think that's the part that, a lot of creatives are missing out on that particular sense of obligation, social awareness, um, to your point, the nerd stuff that's going into what's coming. And the reality is this virus has shut down a lot of conversations um, about what's the hottest color coming out mm-hmm. next. If it's not about, I don't know, helping people in Flint with water, Mm-mm. then why am I that interested in it? And I think you touch upon a lot of those conversations in the nerd community that before might have been like, eh, I don't really care. We were having this considered and Nike saving the planet. Mm -hmm. They were doing that 20 years ago. There were people in offices working on that product, but it wasn't sexy. The reality is from a business standpoint, not even a save the world standpoint, from a business standpoint, if creatives aren't focusing some of their firepower, if designers aren't going, you know what, I could put a hot lens flare on this sketch or some Photoshop work. Like that's less about the conversation and more about, yo, am I learning the proper material guidance to figure out how to use less to make more? Like if that's not part of their conversation, I think it's going to be a miss from a business standpoint. You're going to not be the cool kid just because you show up with some designs that look hot on Instagram. Like that's no longer... I think the price of entry to get into a place that's about to support your product. Like what I usually say to people is that you should hang out with anybody who will spend money to make the thing you draw because to actually build that thing, everybody can sketch now and everybody has an iPad and everybody has something, a piece of paper, they can draw something to have somebody actually put money towards some molds to help make that thing, bring it to life and then take it to retail and then put it on people's feet. Like, that's a huge yeah. gift. Roll with that. In the beginning, you then can build that into a business understanding how it works, but you got to make something that people want to actually have built on this planet and another color of another thing that is just something going on another person with 100,000 followers. Like That's not really true conversation. Not at all. Going forward. No. That's, it's sort of what the future of like, that's what I said, like what you are putting in your toolbox now is I believe not what everybody's hearing about Mm -mm. in order to grow. I think they're still like, Oh, what? uh, Yeah. You should learn Adobe Illustrator. That is a positive thing. No doubt. However, that's not the Mm -mm. the story. Mm -mm. So in your mind now, I know you're like looking at a few things, in terms of like your next steps, but in terms of like what opportunities are out there for everybody, are you seeing anything that people should start focusing and targeting on um, if they want to be a creative? Absolutely. I think the most critical piece 
that creatives are going to have to start to think about is not drawing. It's not 3D modeling. It's not, you know, um, style. It's intentionality because the thing that happened and is happening is this is the first time in a very long time that we've had a global shared traumatic experience. Traumatic experiences hard code in our DNA trauma, right? That's it's why the black race has so much pre-existing health conditions because we have genetic predisposition to trauma embedded in our DNA, high blood pressure, diabetes, you know, stress, hypertension, all that stuff is a result of generational trauma that has been unaddressed and untreated. So you're looking at a generation of people, specifically kids. And I was just telling my children about this. They, they kind of stare at me like, oh, dad, you go off this tangent, but they're going to be <laughs> profound people when they become adults and they'll thank me. So we just got comfortable with saying what sociologists have called the younger generation, generation alpha and generation Z. The problem with that nomenclature mm-hmm. is that there's going to be a fracture in that trajectory for those people in generation alpha, which is essentially the interaction generation where they don't have to touch anything. They don't have to, you know, it's very automated, you know, it's, it's, they're enhanced through technology. That's what they call them. Gen alpha. But within that gen alpha is going to be a subset of people, people, the children born right now are going to grow up in a touchless society, right? Uh, a surveyed society, like tracking people in surveillance, which is normal in China is going to be the global norm. They're going to grow up with people building vertical gardens off their off their homes versus going to grocery stores. You know, they're going to go back to having some things, you know, based on a barter economy versus, you know, the fiat monetary system, which is collapsing right in front of us because it's not backed by the gold standard. It's not backed by anything substantial. Digital currency, you know, um, people being immersed in virtual environments as a way to escape because being outside is a risk to their health. So when you have this fracture, the sociological intent, you're going to have to reestablish or establish new design ethos for this generation. Remember our design principles are based on the industrial revolution. Now our design principles are being pushed towards the automation revolution. But what happens now in this moment where our design principles have to be based on an automated touchless revolution or evolution in human interaction. We've never thought about that. We've thought about human computer interaction, HCI. We've thought about automation and artificial intelligence and machine learning, but we've never thought about a world where we can't physically touch people. We can't physically hug. You can't physically show affection. So these normal rites of passages that help children orient themselves within a family structure will be viewed with the sense of skepticism. What happens now, right? When you, you, are you afraid to sit on, you know, a relative's lap and read a book? Because if that relative is sick, they may pass it to the child, right? These things that we take for granted in our childhood, hugging our parents, getting a kiss on the cheek from my grandmother or the lady at church with a mustache and red lipstick, like, oh, look at the baby. Like, that's not going to happen as much. And so I think designers really have to dig into psychology and look at the only analogous experience that we can measure and learn from is the 1920s. Which is funny because it's a you know it's a hundred year cycle for everything pandemics and economic downturn. But what happened in the 1920s, it wasn't driven through celebrity culture. It was driven through Nobel laureates and industrialists. It's how you got the Andrew Carnegies. It's how you got the Rockefellers. Was on the back of the depression, on the back of the Spanish flu. So I ask everybody, do you remember the top selling music artists from 1920? Can you name them? No, no. <laughs> but you remember the people who built industries from the 1920s, because we talk about them today. So 
the designers of today need to move far away from just focusing on the influencer culture, which I think has pervasively entered into design in a very sickening way and look towards the industrialists, the people who are going to help to shift, create or expand new industries and be part of that narrative. So you got to ask yourself, yo, if people ain't going outside no more. Do I really care about, you know, working at a car company or do I want to work on, you know, going to interior design and build homes that are built for people who are staying at home? build better communities that are built for me interacting within a short distance of five mile range of my house on foot as that's my neighborhood. Now it's five miles from my house is safe. And then everything else I'm exploring online. That's the stuff that designers should look at. Look at sociology, look at economics, understand how markets work, understand how law works, because all those things are the rules of how we will create because design is governed by law by economics and raw materials, but we don't study it though. And so I, I encourage designers to study the system that you're playing in so then you can learn how to win successfully. We think that winning is drawing something dope and getting it made. Nah, bro, but when the global supply chain collapses and you can't get the same resources or materials, how are you gonna build what you wanna build if you don't know what to look for? Appreciate you as always. Likewise, man. Likewise. Glad to be helpful, man. And uh, hopefully people understand, you know, the importance of, of reading. You <laughs> 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 just got to start reading, dog. That's it. That's the trick. <laughs> so thanks for listening to our conversation. Hope you picked up a few gems along the way. For more talks, content, uh, conversations around design and creativity and what we're doing in the future, head on over to Good Things. That's G O O D T H I N dot G S. You can find us over at Facebook, Instagram, and on our website. Um, we hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks. Welcome to Gems. I'm your host, Jeffrey Allen Henderson, designer based out of Harlem, New York City. Over the years, I've had a chance to connect with um, folks in the industry, footwear, design, and just other creative places. And we have conversations, it's real talk. We talk about each other's successes, we talk about each other's failures, um, but mostly we talk about what we want to do in the future. So these are our conversations. Um, thank you for joining us. We hope you all learn something, grab a gym or two, sit back, relax. <laughs>